In part two of my conversation with author Martin Terrell, we talk about blackness in the Midwest today, why education remains the avenue upon which to walk the American road with dignity, with pride, and any possibility of making any traction. We talk about his book, about writing memoirs. I wrote a memoir myself, and we had similar reactions from our siblings about the truth that we told. Talk about his many years raising money for the United Negro College Fund. And is the HBCU model viable moving into the future? In the end, Mr. Terrell delivers an impassioned remembrance about his life and lessons learned along the road. It almost made me cry. And if you stick around long enough, there's also some other truth that I had to deliver. And so I did. state again politically now you win ohio you win the country when you win places like this and it's the places where black folks escape the racism of the south to find factory jobs all along that corridor leading from the delta to michigan to detroit and the ford factories and so they stopped and made lives along that journey but again that's how my mother came but again it's like you're saying there's still i mean i don't know when's the last when's the last time you've been to that area I, i interviewed a friend of mine last year and he was born in North Carolina, grew up here, I met his wife here, they moved to Indiana and he lived in Indiana for a couple of years and he's just saying the same sort of thing, that he's looking at the faces of the black people over there and it's just this defeated, we can't get nowhere, kind of like what you were saying, the difference between black, negro and colored, there's still this colored and negro mentality there, not as maybe weak as it was in the 50s and 60s, but there is still this thing where you, where he's looking at them going, do y'all know y'all can get out of this and y'all can do better? And he described that whole triangle between Ohio, Chicago, and St. Louis as just having the same sort of feel in terms of the black people there. Was that something you think was there even no, in the 70s or, and it's still there now? I've got four sisters. When Barack Obama was running against Hillary, they were going to vote for Hillary. Just on the strength of what? A black man can't do this, why am I going to even do it? A black man can't do it. And Barack? Barack Obama? Right. Hussein. Hussein Obama. Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah. He, he can't be president. What will it take to change the mentality of that triangle from Ohio to, I guess we can put it all as far north as Detroit, St. Louis, that triangle of black folks, what, what is it going to take moving forward now? Because it's those places that have become Republican strongholds now. Because this idea of, again, working class whites pitted against working class blacks and all blacks, because at some point now, with factory jobs going overseas, we're not competing for scarcer and scarcer resources and scarcer and scarcer money to sustain our families. So if I'm a white guy and I got to compete against you, I don't like you. And I... As a matter of fact, I hate you because you're taking money from my family. So I get the rationale. But 
what is it going to take for them to recognize kind of like the women did with the black students not just at Ohio State but women and uh, the homosexual community found a path to their rights by mimicking what black folks did to the civil rights and found coalition with our struggle and identity in their struggle by really looking at what worked for us. And progress in this country has always been allying those things. Women who want equal rights get together with blacks who want equal rights, get together with homosexuals who want equal rights, get together with Latinos who want equal rights. Mm -hmm. And then we go against the people who are really controlling all of us. So what is it gonna take in that area for that to happen? Because honestly, I don't think about black progress in Ohio, I think about the South. I think about the Northeast Corridor. I think about the Black Panthers in the West. And it is it is the problem. I don't think about the Midwest, besides Chicago, maybe. And that is where the Republicans are. That That's the red states. Mm-hmm. And if the election of, I'm not even going to say his name, idiot in the White House, serves anything, it's that progressives and Democrats, for lack of a better word, we turned our back on those people. And I am admitting that because I have, until you said this, I never even thought about civil rights in that area. We've completely forgot about those people. So what what do we have to do? I don't know. I think to form the kind of coalitions that help people survive, I think you have to begin with education. They don't think about what's going on outside of themselves. They don't think about what's moving around them, what makes things happen to them. Why? My mother and dad, we went to foster homes and stuff. Foster homes can be critical for children who don't have anybody. But there has to be something instilled in those children that says, get us something. Get us something that we can fight with. We need something that those people are beating us down in the ground with because we don't have any defense. Part of that defense is education. We can't get the jobs we need. We don't get anything handed down to us. They talk about we don't have any wealth. Who hands us down a house that's paid for? Who hands us down a house where we have some wealth to begin with? We don't get that. Thinking only about kids is not going to get it. I have one daughter. She's uh, running for Congress in the 8th District in Massachusetts. Uh, She was the first female to uh, run for a seat in Boston in 103 years and won it three times. She worked for John Kerry six times when he was a senator, and before that worked for Robert Kennedy Jr. for a year. From there, that's when she went to Kerry. She went to private school in Chicago, then she went to uh, Boston University. She shows how strong black women can be. Yeah, but it goes back to what you said. It's about, again, education providing an avenue outside of the walls that you live in physically, psychologically, and aspirationally. If you're in Cincinnati, Selma, Soweto, anywhere in the world, that is necessary. But the fact that you got an education and then used your education to do some good, and we're going to get to that with the United Negro College Fund, the fundraising that you're doing to give opportunities to others, in a sense, her political career is doing the same thing. She's passing on your legacy of being a change agent 
for her, it's in a more, I guess it would be in a more direct way because she can actually enact laws that actually change the lives of people the day after she signs something. So she's doing that, but none of that happens without the education. We talk about the wealth gap in this country, and you, you hinted at it, that there's nothing to pass on. But what it is, the wealth gap is also the normalization of wealth. Like we talk about Mr. Barfield, just in the way he presented himself, he didn't have to tell you every day, I'm wearing a tie, so that means I'm a dignified black man. It's just a part of what he presents, mm-hmm. that you get that education that this is the way you could be or should be. And with Mr. Vernal Matthews, my middle school, seventh and eighth grade teacher, he wore a three-piece suit, so he gave me that sort of sense of proper and pride and all that stuff. No matter the bullshit, and there was a lot of bullshit going on in my middle school, a lot of violence and a lot of craziness, but he was just, he was just solid. It was just solid. So the wealth, to me, that generational wealth thing, and people don't talk, it's just that, like that privilege. I got it. I didn't even have to think about it. Yeah. I got it. It's so part of me that they just don't realize, yeah, you got wealth, and how did you get it? Because there were red line laws that prevented my grandparents from getting it, so you got it. What if my grandparents got it instead of you? Then you'd be struggling just like I am right now. But it's just, yeah, we just had it. No, you didn't just have it. It was given to you by laws that were enacted so that your foreparents would have it. And then if we want to take it all the way back to slavery, we can do that, but they don't want to. And I don't want to go there because then the discussion ends going, well, I'm not a, you're not a slave now. That's, that wasn't I wasn't, me, wasn't blah, involved. Blah, blah, blah. I, I wasn't, wasn't involved, involved in slavery. But you're that benefiting from it. Yeah. That is the wealth. The wealth that's passed on that's just nobody talks about. And also an educational lineage that's just now passed on to your daughter where she probably grew up in a household where, yeah, you're going to college. It's not even a question about it's normal. That's what you're going to do. Talking about the book, which, again, without a compass, memoir by Mr. Martin Terrell, it's available online. I got to mention that people can just Google it. It's on Amazon. It's on. It's it's everywhere online. You can you can get it. And again, reading a little blurb about the book, I saw this like direct connection, specifically. And I think in some descriptions of the book, you talk about the fact that your family didn't quite accept the truth that you're presenting about the way things were from your perspective. I can relate to that directly. I haven't talked to my baby sister in three years because I mentioned things about her father. I was middle school, so she would have been elementary school. There's no way that she could have remembered these things. Mm. And so I present truths from my perspective about a person she knows nothing about. She never read the book. I don't think anybody in my immediate family, I'm the oldest of five kids, none of them ever read the book. My mother's made it, she said, through halfway through the book, the rest of it is too painful because she doesn't want to remember that stuff. I'm not trying to hurt anybody right. by bringing up memories. Right. This is life the way I saw it. Yeah. It might not be your truth, but it is a truth. So talk about that a little bit, about the reaction from the family, the people closest to you. I seriously believe nobody who lived in the household that I grew up in has ever read my book, but they all have an opinion about it. Tell you the truth, at first, I was afraid to let them see it. You know, I, I let my brother see it because he was the youngest and I was the oldest. And we both had a different view of my father, mm-hmm. my stepfather. Well, he read, at first, 
part of it, and uh, it affected him very deeply. I had written about his father in a way that he had no idea, but I'd written about our mother in a way that made him cry, because he had never, never seen his mother at all. But our father didn't have a good relationship with me, but he had a better relationship with my brother. Mm-hmm. My brother understood why I had the view that I had. And I asked him after he had read the complete book, do you think I should let the rest of them see it? He said, yeah, you can let the rest of them see it. I said, don't say anything to them about it. And it took me a while to make up my mind to do that. After about two weeks, I sent it to them. Two of them still haven't called me and let me know what they think. The second eldest called me, she was in love with it. She said, I I wasn't old enough to see uh, how you and Daddy really got along. She said, but you really nailed the parts that I knew about. She said, but I didn't really know what was going on with you. Uh, Brenda, who is the youngest, and Wanda, who is the oldest, they want to meet and uh, talk about all the things you said that are wrong. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And they asked me if I wanted to be a part of that. She said, I I didn't want to be a part of that. Because it's your truth. It's your perspective. The youngest one, Brenda, hasn't been in touch with me, neither has Wanda. But the third oldest has called and said that she likes it so well, she wants to contact a friend of hers who owns a bookstore there in Lexington where she's moved to. So two of them like it and two of them don't. Well, that's the world. Half of the world is against you. Half of the world is with you. You're 71 year old black yeah. man. And the book was written over the last two years or so. Yeah, yeah. And published this January. What took so long? What made you at this point in your life go, you know what? I'm ready to tell this story. Here I come. You can I'd written parts of it before, but only as short stories. And I put them in magazines, some articles, and I looked at it and some people had said, sounds like this is part of a larger story. I said, it could be, but it wasn't enough for a book. And I took the pieces and showed it to an editor. And she said, well, try to put it together what you have and let me see it. I did that, and she looked at it and said, yeah, but if you could fill in some of the pieces that connects what you have here, maybe we can get a book. She had me add perspective on my stepfather so that he didn't look like an ogre, because he wasn't an ogre, he wasn't. And when we would wash the car together, that was some of the best times that we had. I really enjoyed that. The time we went to Selma and were stopped um, by the uh, two white men, that was a time when I appreciated him standing up as a man. 
So there are things that I really liked about him. But again, your truth is your truth is undeniable. You have a specific perspective seeing the world the way that you did. And that should not be denied by the people closest to you. Kind of like the way black folks are begging the world to just, this is my life. See my life for what it is. You don't have to love it, but just accept that this is the reality that I see. When it comes to writing memoirs, especially when it comes to families and putting family details, I can speak from experience that it's tough. It's tough. You can't edit it no. and keep your truth in there. No. You can't try to solve their feelings and say it's you. And they say, well, well, why didn't you include this? Well, I was like, well, go write your book. Go write your version of whatever happened in our house when we lived there. That's what you, I spent the time to do this. You go do it. Yeah. This is my story. You want to tell your version? Go tell your version. Sit down and do it. It took me time and energy, psychic energy, to come to grips and try to build a narrative around this thing that made sense, one, to me, and then that would make sense to a reader. If you want to spend the time to do all that, go at it. Don't come and complain to me about what I know to be real for me. Are there any other books in the works, sir? I would like to, to do some poetry, but that would be for me. Poetry has a limited readership. Plus, poetry is more personal than, right. than this. I've been sitting on a book of poems for 20 years. I'm telling you, man, this is, I feel like I'm talking to myself 30 years from now. I'm sitting on a book of poems, and it's about young black men and our perspective. When I was coming to, into my own as, teen, as a teenager, I think the reality of what it is is so complex because I tell people that when I write, I first write as a human being, human being on this earth. And then I'm a man. And then on top of that, I'm a black man. I can't separate those three realities. They are who I am. You can imagine as a 16, 17 year old, anybody can go back and look at their teenage years and see how convoluted and crazy they were. You were just trying to get bits and pieces of sense of reality. And so a lot of times, the only way for me to conceive or conceptualize of what those things were was poetry. Because poetry yeah. doesn't have to be all together. It all right. doesn't have to make right. sense. Right. It's just kind of like an abstract painting, just bits and pieces of ideas and emotions. Right. Right. So there's a lot of that stuff from when I was that age. And I think, especially with the atmosphere in America it is now, which is harkening back to times that were ever present for black people in this country, of oppression, repression, just being forced into a corner, into your place, stay there, don't express who you are. I think that poetic license, it frees the people who can't really wrap their head around how pervasive and convoluted and how big the structure of this hypocrisy is. So I think poetry is an avenue to do that. I think hip hop is poetry, so hip hop would do that. Yeah. But I think poetry is a means to do it. And so I've been sitting on these things for 20 years and maybe it's time. What other things are you doing besides promoting the book to sort of stay grounded in this blackness that you defined earlier as separate from colored and Negro as just being able to live your own truth? I mean, how do you do that now as a 
71-year-old man who just, I know who I am, comfortable enough to write this history, you know, without a compass, the memoir, and just, this is me, man. Well, I try to do as much as I can to just be who I am, whatever that takes. Recently, I was at the, uh, the ethical humanist something. You know, I spoke about who I am and how I got to be who I am. I don't do much of anything. I just kick back, write a few things that I send to people. I'm not working on a book, mm. but I still write. I'm in uh, two writers' groups. That keeps me intellectually going. Mm. I get to read my stuff, new stuff. And I'm in a poetry group. So still active. But again, even that is, to me, somewhat an act of rebellion because a lot of folks in our community, my age and younger, can picture this reality when they're 71, that you've accomplished what you have to do in terms of the working world. They can just kick back, relax, and enjoy your life. Like I don't think people, even outside a community, conceive of the person you are today. Just like we say... Like when you were in middle school or when I was in middle school, seeing these examples of seeing what was possible. I don't know if the young brothers in Cincinnati are struggling through gang violence in in Los Angeles or struggling through life in Brooklyn can picture 71, accomplished, settled, reflecting on your child and their accomplishments and enjoying that, and then just being. in your house in the middle of the day just being and I don't know if enough young bloods can conceive of that when I set out writing my book and realizing who I was very very early on all I wanted to do because it seemed like the white folks around me or on television or in the media were just doing it yeah. just being themselves and yeah. it seemed like such a such an effort for a black person to just be themselves and here you are yourself let me tell you, one thing that I, I did that I wanted to do when I was out there on the streets marching and stuff was to go to Africa. I went to Africa. Maybe I went too late. Where? where what country specifically? I went to South Africa and Zimbabwe. I went to Africa with a group. It was an expensive tour to begin with. I was the only black person in the group. We were staying at this place near Victoria Falls. All the people who worked there were natives to the area. After a while, I began to have some uh, strange feelings, and maybe that, that was on me. I just felt uncomfortable in a black nation being treated like a white person. White Americans are treated as tourists with money, and I was treated as a tourist first as an American second, and maybe as a black American. But they wanted tourist outlets because tourist outlets are what helps them live. I was helping the economy, but I wasn't the brother that I thought in the 60s by going home to Africa, because I wasn't going home. It really bothered me. And then, the only thing that saved me, and it made me angry too, we went to this, this one village, 
And there was a white matron who had brought some goodies. She was passing them out. And the kids loved it, and I hated it. One little kid ran to me, grabbed my leg, and looked up to me with her doing eyes, and I hugged it. And that was my saving grace. There was the connection? Yeah. interesting to take the trip there with a group of black folks. Yeah. Like I knew a lot of students who would go to Ghana from NC State and see Elmina Castle where the, the last point of connection with the slaves were before they were put on those boats. But I also, growing up in the Caribbean, same sort of place, basically like going back to Africa. Mm-hmm. And I go back home to St. Vincent in the Caribbean every summer. And I'm also I'm very cognizant of the fact that they see me as a tourist. And it's wonderful that Again, we talk about white privilege, and I'm jumping around here, but we talk to some white folks who travel the world, and have been traveling the world, and their parents have been traveling the world since, let's say, post-World War II, when the world is stabilizing. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a white person traveling the world in the 50s and 60s, the rest of the world is decimated and poor. Your American dollar is, is a month's salary to them. So yeah. you you come back from that experience going, these lovely people, they love me so much. No, they don't. They love your money. Yeah. And I try to tell people that when you go to St. Vincent, it's not that we, we're not callous. The folks that live there are not callous. I think there's still a general and a genuine sense of, you're here, we want to make sure that you have a good time, right, see my country. Right. But somewhere in their mind, there's association with just a white person and being able to provide for me today and maybe tomorrow to feed my family. Because the fact that you're here, I have a friend who talks about um, there'd be boats coming into the capital. He's my age, and I didn't know this. Be bo- and he lived in the capital, I live in the country. There'd be boats coming in the capital, and tourists would flick money into the harbor, and mm-hmm. just the kids would go down and dive and get the coins. To them, that was sport, that was fun. You, you jump in, you find money, you, you wrestle with your friends. But think about that. Like I have so much, I can just you know flick at 25 cents or whatever into the harbor, and you watch black boys fight for it basically so there is this thing this privilege i think that certain populations have always experienced traveling the world Mm. you're not traveling the world and everybody loves you they love your money for the five days that you're there yeah and i think they come back going whoa what a wonderful oh india was great it was lovely yeah and unfortunately yeah. here's the bad part when it comes to me as a black man 
I would assume when I go to those places now, I'm not seen as that. Right. I am seen as some troubling black person because all they know about me in America is the troubles or whatever it yeah. is. So yeah. you get to see the world from a certain vantage point because colonialism and oppression and repression and forcing people to read a certain side of you so gives true. them a certain perspective that you're going to experience for your five wonderful days in paradise. Whereas I go there, they're seeing the other side of this. They're seeing the history that you perpetrate on them about me. Yeah. So I am not having a vacation. I'm not having that. Here you go, sir. I'm having it, but I'm not really having it, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? They still have to be courteous and kind and all that. But there's specifically post-World War II. When again, the rest of the world is decimated. The rest of the world is living on crumbs because your countries had world wars and killed them. Yeah. So and you destroyed Japan, you destroyed everything else. So you're going around, you're seeing all the world for ten dollars a day, which is nothing to you, and it's great, and everybody's servicing you, and you're in a rickshaw, and somebody says, Jump in my boat, I'll take you there. Not because they love you, man. I'm not saying they don't care. But I really get the feeling, and there's no way for them to recognize it in themselves. It's not because you're great. Yeah. They're not doing this because you're great. They're doing this because you have money. That's it. That's it. Keep your economy alive. That's it. Yeah. But I think they come back from these experiences going, wow, what a wonderful place. Those people are so warm. They're poor, but they're so happy. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not happy at all. They'll trade places and take on all the problems that you were running away from to go on vacation over there, they'll take those problems on in a heartbeat yeah. for nothing. And they'll work for a third of what you're making here, deal with all your problems so they can get out of the hovels and the dens of shithole countries, quote unquote, that my man says that they're in. But you, they're so lovely they're so charming they have such a dignity in their poverty nobody has dignity in poverty my man it's, it's the same same rent they did for slavery we were at the um, apartheid museum and we were reading from one of the papers and uh, this british woman said ah just like you yanks hey they recognize that we're hypocrites don't right. do Apartheidism, it's just not in South Africa. And we had it too, but we didn't call it that. She said, just like you yanks. The rest of the world knows. The rest yeah. of the world, if they're aware enough, knows. We, we've talked a bit, but I, I wanted to get to, you finished up your working career as a, as a regional director for the UNCF, for the United Negro yeah, College regional Fund. regional director, yeah. And I, I wanted to, to get into that because the declining significance of historically black colleges and universities is a big deal. It certainly is. So what what was your experience there? What got you into that? And you talk about the difficulties in funding. What are those difficulties and do you think there is a future in HBCUs in the next 50 years? I'm building me a When I went to work for UNCF, I was really amazed by the money they were able to raise from corporations. The office I worked for 
was on Wall Street in New York. So they were near a lot of corporate headquarters. So they could raise money from corporations because it's good for a corporation to have on their list that we give to the United Negro College <laughs> Fund. It's politically to their advantage because it makes them look like their community. It's more human. E- even though on the back end they're robbing <laughs> right. people and being uh, crooks. But on the front end, they want to look like they're involved with the community. And who else is better? They're black, they have colleges, they fund colleges. So sure, UNCF, you better believe it. I've even gone to um, affairs downtown where we had Clinton as a speaker one time. And who's better than Bill Clinton to come, you know, and help us raise money? First black president. Yeah. <laughs> he can play a saxophone. Yeah, so that was fairly easy for us. But what is hard for UNCF to raise money, and this is the reason I was hired, is that the alumni from HBCUs don't have the kind of money the alumni have from other big colleges. Some of them do, okay, but they they don't have the continuity as far as private schools that have three or four of their children go to the same alma mm-hmm. mater. That happens even with big state universities. So there's a tradition of giving. HBCUs don't have that. And my soul got a I was interviewed at Dillard University in Los Angeles uh, to be a vice president, and I was interviewed at Atlanta University for more salary than I could get for a vice president for either one of those universities. I was hired first as an assistant vice president at Stony Brook because it's in New York, mm-hmm. basically. Cost of living and all that. Uh, for a much higher salary. Mm-hmm. That's one reason HBCUs can hire extremely experienced mm-hmm. fundraisers to do the kind of work that they need done, and they don't have the base to raise the kind of money that they need to raise. So at UNCF, they wanted me to do in a year what white universities had been doing for many, many years. Right. My first job was to identify a base of prospects that I could raise $10,000 plus from. The second job was to look at the current prospects and up them to $10,000 if I could. Those were the two basic things to do. And the third thing was to look at their system of how they were taking their bases and doing it electronically. And their, you know, their how the effective means of communication to the people who have the money. Right. Yeah. Looking at all of that, did they give me two years, maybe a year? Anyway, I was supposed to do it in a very limited time. To try to do that in each HBCU, they have a small graduate base. And the fields that many of them go into are not many lucrative fields. They're like social work and stuff like that. You're not going to get a $10,000 donation for somebody who's a social worker. I had a hard job. 
So they're fighting a losing battle then. So is it sustainable in the next 50 years? Do you have a fear that they're not going to be around 50 years from now? The only way they're going to be around is if they get government help. They can find a way to get some government support. They need more prospects. They need to be able to make bigger gifts. Without those three basic elements, you can't raise a lot of money. You just can't. You just can't. And the the other part of that is the then, the trajectory in terms of looking for donation is not to the alumni because it's just, it's capped as to how much they can really give as a pool. Mm-hmm. You're looking towards corporations and by default, then you're tied to that corporation, right. not just in that giving, but in whatever ideology they believe. So if they're sponsor of the NFL or whatever, whatever it is, and they believe a certain way, like their corporations have a certain conservative philosophy, then you can't have the kids on your campus speaking out against that. So then I have to assume that that comes into play. I think it was Bethune Cookman who had Nancy DeVos as the graduation speaker last year. And Nancy DeVos, she has no business being education secretary, secretary of education in this country, she has no business being it. And rightfully the students at Bethune Cookman turned their backs on her when she was speaking. I remember that. And you saw, and I'm gonna call them out, the color the Negro deans on the damn day are saying, if you Negroes don't act up, basically tell this, if you don't act up, basically gonna cancel graduation and mail your diplomas to you. How can a man in that position, knowing what this idiot woman stands for and what she says, be making that statement? But I understand why Nancy DeVos has to come to Bethune-Cookman, because they need money. And she's the top dog signing her name to give checks to any and everybody in education. You parlay a nice relationship with her, Bethune-Cookman might get a little extra 10 grand or 50 grand or whatever the heck it is. So I understand these Faustian packs that HBCUs have to make with, with corporations, but then it limits the expression on an HBCU. It should be a space like we're having now where we can be unapologetically black. Mm. And if the money's coming from corporations, then you can't, there's no way you can be. So again, that just leads me to how sustainable are these things? I know places like Howard, they have big endowments because they have longer legacies and they have people who are all over the place. They're going to be fine, but it's the Bethune-Cookman, it's the Dillard, it's the, you know, whatever, I don't even know the name. I can't name like five other ones. Atlanta University. But the, I, I just, I, I worry about that. So I think it's something to be discussed in the next couple of years. Just like your story at 71 is something to be, to be discussed. We haven't even gotten into your opinion about, you know, Barack Obama. I mean, from where you were, and born in the late 40s, to seeing a black man elected in 2008. We didn't even go into that. I mean, that's a discussion for another time. But I know that had to be like, I don't even know what that would be like. For a kid who grew up, that that was earth shattering to me. To me, it was the new Camelot. Is there anything that you want to? 
tell them 71 years living in this country as a black man. And I think the theme of this, for me at least, is individual human right. What am I or who am I as a black man? And not letting anybody curtail you from acknowledging that, learning more about it, developing and then expressing it. So is there anything besides what's in the book? And again, the book is Without a Compass, Mr. Martin Terrell, available online. Besides what's in there, is there anything you want the Ubuntu People's Podcast audience to kind of take in from you? I don't think it's anything unique or special, but I do think for me, it's been more of a travel down a road than, than a real struggle. It's a road that most black people, it's, it's there in front of us, but we just have to take the right step. I mean, many of us just make the wrong choice. Um, when we have that opportunity, and I think what happened to me is when I had the opportunity to travel that road, my mind was at the point that I took that step and the next step and the next. And I think that when you do that, that's what opened the world up to me. And I saw would be a man and being black, how they converged. And all my life, I had been a black man and didn't know it. All this stuff before is just camouflage. It camouflaged who I really was. I was so either hung up and bullshit or too blind or stupid to recognize it as it was until I could step out of it. The road, it was there all the time, but I had to make just one step. That's all it takes, that one step. And I was on that road, and that led to the next one, but I had been camouflaged my whole life until I took a step. That's all it took for me. people don't tell their stories they don't think their story is important enough because specifically blackness they think blackness your story has to look like Malcolm X or Martin or John Lewis when the black story is yours it's without a compass it's just like you said the road that we all travel and the journey to blackness is one that's more internal than it is external because the first thing you have to recognize is that they can't deny you something that you are from birth. You are and always have been this. And the forces are laid against us. Every day it's the, it's the denial of not what's in front of you, but it's what's behind the eyes and what you should see every day that you wake mm -hmm. up, that you are this thing. You're that. And it's a That's powerful, powerful, powerful thing. And I'm, I'm fortunate that there are people like Mr. Matthews and for you, Mr. Barfield, and even your stepfather, at his best, you know, help you recognize that. And I'm thankful that for me, it was the education and not just book learning, 
but just the very fact that these people encouraged me and told me that I was good enough to learn this stuff, that I was good enough to start thinking about philosophy in middle school or high school or start thinking about all these things. It was not beyond me. And like I said, that opened up a path to start thinking about, well, how does this stuff apply to my life? Why is there cracking around this school? What forces, you know, do all this stuff? I didn't need somebody to tell me that. I looked around and they used my five senses and my awareness as my sixth sense to try to make make sense of it. Nobody had to teach me to be that black person. And despite the bullshit that was happening in my house, the bullshit that was happening in Brooklyn, the bullshit that was happening in school, there was still a light, a core inside of me that said, for whatever reason, you're going to get by this. I don't know what it was. And people asked me, why you? I don't think I'm special. I just went inside when everybody was looking for a fix outside with vices mm. and drugs and violence, mm. and shoes, I need to get this, I need to do this, I need to look mm. this part, nah, mm. nah, 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 nah. My mind told me I just gotta understand who I am. And when they're looking for the polo shirt to tell them how black they are, or when they're looking for this hip hop leg to tell them, I know. There are times when I was very uncomfortable with it. And I didn't know how to express it, but I knew what it was. And just like you, I knew it was always there. It's always been there. I think my life, I want my legacy to be, is expressing that. I recognize also it doesn't have to be on the Martin Luther King level, you know. I would have loved to be, you know, Barack, but I don't have to be to make a difference. I find that at this point, I just want to live my life and live my truth. And I know that there are enough people who are seeking influence and guidance if they're looking and they're ready. Because that's the important thing you mentioned. You got to be ready to take the step. So I know that a lot of people who are not ready, who are not going to get it, who are not going to find sustenance from what I think my life is or has been or what your life has been. But if you're ready, man, if you're ready, there is guidance down that road in a bunch of black people. You just got to look. And when you're ready, you'll see them. That's what I'm saying. I looked at your, it's like a two page article in a little community magazine. I said, I have to meet this man. Because there's something I recognize, a truth I recognize about what you've lived, what you've done, and what effect it can have. And I'm really appreciative, really glad that you took the time to talk to me, Mr. Terrell. And hopefully the, the listeners of the Ubuntu People's Podcast gain something from it. Because I know I did. So. Well, well, I'm really glad you came. <laughs> I've not had an opportunity to talk about it. And you've given me that. That's what I want to do. So folks on Ubuntu People's Podcast, appreciate you taking the time to listen now. I want you to be back. I hope you will be back. But for now, we are out. We're ready for the road. Yeah, we're ready. 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 Yeah, we're ready. We're ready. We're ready. We're ready. As always, the Ubuntu People's Podcast is here to bring you stories, try to inspire and deliver hope. We all have a power to manifest. 
you all have a reason for being and I want to get into those things. Listen, click, like, share, subscribe. We are on Podomatic. We are on iTunes and the Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends all over your social media, especially if you enjoy these stories. I mean, why wouldn't they? If you're interested in having a conversation with me about anything, reach out, connect. We're ready for the History, literature, it was a point where I recognized truth is relative in life. Amen. You know what I'm saying? Truth is relative, is your perspective. And give me something where I can at least inject my black version of truth onto you. Because I know I can write, I know I'm intelligent. Yeah. But I know the people that I'm turning this stuff into, y'all ain't used to this. And I'm gonna give you something y'all ain't used to. You have to know and recognize my truth because. What I recognize later on is y'all ain't talking about this shit. No. Y'all ain't talking about this. So if I can in an English paper inject, you know, they say write about blah, 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 Shakespeare. Well, if I can somehow connect Shakespeare with the autobiography of Malcolm X, I'm going to do it. Because you have to see something about my reality that I know you never will regardless for the rest of your life. And the sad part is I need you to because you're the person who knows the guy, who knows the guy, who knows the guy that's going to make a decision that's going to affect my life and my families and my neighborhood. Yeah. I'm not politicizing my experience. And I think some people look at it as that. Well, yeah. you people always talking about race. No, 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 no. I'm talking about it because you never will. Yeah. As woke, as, as intelligent as you think you are, as progressive as you think you are, you're not doing anything. You know why I know that? Because from 1946 to 1950s in Cincinnati, to 64 in Selma, it's 2018 and I'm still having the same fight, man. It's still the same fight. History, it just keeps coming back every couple of years. And the worst among the majority culture, whenever we have any semblance of gains, they reach back into their historical context and try to put us back into my place. And again, I think the thread that we've been seeing from the beginning is my place as a man is who Ever the fuck I decided to be and you will not tell me ever 
You will not tell me. If that means I got to kneel on the sidelines in an NFL game, you don't like that. If that means I got to march with my hands up, you don't like that. If I mean I got to say my life, Matt, you don't like that. I don't care. I'm not being resistant. I'm not being anti-American. I'm being myself. This is me as a man. And this country has never wanted to accept me as a man that I am. And so if there's a point where I can interject my particular manhood into something, why would I not? My intelligence tells me this is the only way you're going to get it because you don't get it any other way. No. You're the only one who can tell because they're not going to get it. They're not going to seek it out. (laughs) I think I have to talk to folks who live through what you live through, who are at your stage in life, because here we are at this point again, having these same conversations again, going through this same fight again. There came a point where I realized, just like you said, you know, when they're showing the black and whites of the dogs attacking people. There are people on the other on, on the other side of the street, two blocks over, just going, "Man, I gotta get to work." They're living their life. They're just yeah. going about living their life, and we just want to go about living our life. But we keep coming back into this same cycle, into the same circle, keeps turning and coming back to this same point over and over again. And then it's the same argument. Is the argument is not really. Allow me to go to school with you so I can just be educated as a man and do what I want. All right. 60s. I just want to vote. This is the right that your constitution says I I must have so I can participate in this democracy. I just want to vote. Or in the 70s, affirmative action. I just want an opportunity. If you and I have the same, I just want an opportunity to get there when in the past it looked like the good old boys network was just taking you. I just want it. I recognize that the fight was not getting those things established because we've always done that. We've always found a way and America's court systems as warped and as racist as they are, when it gets specifically to the Supreme Court, we've always been able to make gains. But to me, the fight was always just to, and I hate to say is to convince you that what I'm saying is truth. What I'm saying is real. My perspective is valid. My life matters, and I why, why should you have to argue for that? I don't know why I didn't come. I left you by the house of fun. I don't know why I didn't come. The fight is still and always has been exactly what you said. Why do I even have to justify my existence to you? I shouldn't have to. I'm a man. You're a man. You think a certain way. Your skin just happens to be white. You have a certain cultural experience. But the base of it. What do you as a man want? And why wouldn't I want the same thing? Mm. It's a lady. She does like racial sensitivity training. And it's a white lady. She talks about racism. I think there's a song by a guy named T.I. He, he has an excerpt of her just saying something like she's in a group. I'm assuming a, a room full of white people. And she says, you guys know the difference between how black folks and white folks are treated in this country. Would you right now trade places with a black person in this room or in society? And she asked them to raise their hand. Nobody does. And the tacit fact is this. 
You know what yes. happens to us. Yes. You know what happens to us. And what are you doing about it? I don't blame them because they got to go about living their life and this is just an added burden or whatever. Mm-hmm. The answer is nothing. Nothing of consequence. Nothing of, for the worst among them. course and I have to do this I hate having to do this there's a phrase now unapologetically black just I'm just gonna live my life and live my truth I don't care what you think about it but I also recognize that in order for change to happen in this country I have to make alliances with certain progressive people who might not look like me so I'm gonna say this not every single one of you is like that and there are wonderful people out there who are willing to do change and make change but know that I need you when Colin Kaepernick says that he's going to kneel. I need you to go back and tell your friends in your neighborhood why he has to kneel. And don't tell me that he should just play sports and he's rich and that's enough because you're rich. Your richness does nothing for me. His kneeling does more for me than your money. Mm-hmm. Again, no, no. Unapolo- this is unapologetic blackness as it's most black. <laughs> this is... And I say we have these conversations all the time, but these are conversations that are needed. And unfortunately, y'all need to hear this. Y'all need to hear this. Nobody here is hating on you. We're not hating. We're not angry. This is not anger. This is just reality as it exists for us. And we don't get a chance to express this enough because you find it offensive. The worst among you find just a taste, just a half of 1% of our reality offensive. Because it, it, it forces you to confront your own ignorance. And it forces you to confront the insidiousness of your own history. Oh, you can and you cannot face that, it. But you have to be polite. They want you to be polite. Um, we run a white privilege course at my church, Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. And um, most of them don't even realize they benefit from white privilege. It's given to them. It was given to you. You don't even know that you benefit from it. So that's what we have to do, to open their eyes.